Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 1. We'll be picking up in verse 30, right where we left off last week in just a moment. Now, last week was the first week of Advent. And we've been talking about this in our class before service, but, you know, unlike our culture, which just explodes with Christmas as soon as possible, I mean, some as early as, you know, they get their Halloween costumes off, and the next thing you know, Christmas music is playing everywhere you go, but some at least are patient enough to wait until the end of Thanksgiving. But, you know, our our culture just explodes with Christmas immediately, as soon as possible. Advent is about the quiet anticipation of good news. It's about waiting for God to do what God has promised that he would do. And so during this season of Advent, we remember that we are a waiting people, waiting for Jesus to return. This is who we are right now. Often during the season, we look back to God's people throughout history who've waited for the arrival of their Messiah. Those ancestors who first received God's promises. And then there's the prophets who just kept reminding them of what God had promised. And the people waited. The people waited. We too are among those who wait. Now, this year, as we journey through the seasons of Advent and Christmas, we are looking back to one particular person who shows us up close and personally what it looks like to receive good news and wait for its fulfillment. Mary, We are looking to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the background and the setting of Mary's life. We heard Gabriel's announcement. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Which we saw, as we looked at it last week, was not just a friendly greeting or even a a kind blessing, but this was the beginning of a prophetic call for Mary to participate in the mission of God. And last week, we saw Mary's first response. She was greatly troubled and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Greatly troubled and wondering. And so as we continue today, Gabriel will share more about what Mary is being called to participate in. And we will see Mary's second response, asking a question. And so let's read together Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, 
Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of this season as we wait for you and trust in your promises. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so Mary's second response to Gabriel is asking a question. How will this be? How will this be? And you know, as I was reflecting on this, I thought about the story, The Giver, right? It's a novel by Lois Lowry published in 1993. Have any of you read it or seen the movie that was made about it? Yeah, there's a few, right? It tells the story of a society where everything is predetermined. Right? New children are assigned to specific family units, one son and one daughter per household. There are strict rules as the children grow up. All the girls would wear ribbons in their hair until age nine. And then at age 12, all of the children are given a predetermined life assignment. Right? This is what you're going to do with the rest of your life. So on and so forth. Everything about the society is predetermined, right? And, and, you know, supposedly the purpose of this is for everything to go well and, and be at peace, right? And one of the most important things within this society is that no one is allowed to ask any questions. No questions at all. To do so would be to undermine the authority of the committee of elders, the people who are in charge of this society. Things were the way that they are. No questions allowed. Now, if we're honest, sometimes our faith has been made to feel a lot like this, right? Everything is predetermined and assigned by God, or the Bible, or church leaders, no questions asked, right? I mean, when I was growing up, there was very little focus in church on asking questions. In fact, church was often about having the answers, whether it was knowing about the Bible, how to be saved, what to do and not to do. Faith was about having answers. And of course, our church had all the right answers, right? To ask questions would be, like the giver, to undermine church leaders, the Bible, or perhaps even God himself. And so question asking was looked down on. People who asked questions were, were troublemakers. They were doubter, doubters. You know, we were the people with the answers. And yet, when we look to the Bible, we often see that God, throughout Scripture, 
welcomes questions. When we look at this passage here in Luke chapter 1, we see that God welcomes questions. Questions are welcome. Just like Mary in this passage, as we respond to God, we should be a people who lean in deeper to what God is saying by asking questions. And so, just like last week, I want to look back through this passage and consider together, what does Gabriel say? How does Mary respond? And what might this mean for us? What did Gabriel say? How did Mary respond? And what might this mean for us? So, first, what does Gabriel say? What does Gabriel say? Well, after his first address to Mary, she was left troubled and wondering, right? And and so in verse 30, he addresses that, and he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, this is huge, right? This one verse could easily be the whole sermon, But I just want to highlight a few things, right? So first, he tells her, do not be afraid. Then he calls her by name. And then he reminds her that she has found favor with God. And that word favor is the same word in Greek as as the word grace, right? She is rooted in God's grace. She is favored by God. These words that Gabriel speaks to Mary also speak to the foundation of our life with God. These words that Gabriel speaks to Mary also speak to the foundation of our life with God. We must always remember that our relationship with God is rooted in grace. We are favored by God. God knows and calls us by name, just as the angel does here with Mary. And so, because of that, we do not need to be afraid. We are God's beloved children, known and favored. And so Gabriel says, do not be afraid. And this refrain is repeated countless times throughout the Bible, right? It's said to Abraham, to Hagar, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua, to David, to Solomon, to Elijah. It's spoken by prophets like Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It's proclaimed by the psalmist, on and on. And here in this passage, it is spoken to Mary, do not be afraid. I want you to hear this. To live with God is to let go of fear. To live with God is to let go of fear. Remember 1 John that we just read through this fall. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at at this passage, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear, and God is love. So to live with God is to let go 
of fear. And I think a lot of times we have not asked questions because we were afraid. We were afraid that church people would judge us for asking questions. We were afraid that God might condemn us for asking questions. A lot of times we have clung to answers because we were afraid. Maybe we were afraid of looking foolish if we didn't know the answers, or we were afraid of not being in control. After all, having answers does at least give us a nice illusion of control, right? But if we let go of fear and rest in the grace of God, we no longer have to anxiously hold on to the right answers or fearfully abstain from asking questions. We can trust God and enter into relationship with him fully as ourselves, questions and all. Now, there's something else that I love about what Gabriel says here, right? When Mary wondered what kind of greeting this might be, he didn't first respond by telling her what she was being called to, right? He, he doesn't start by saying, all right, here's what you're going to do. Rather, he responds by reminding her who she is, who she is, Mary, favored by God. No need for fear. And the very same thing is true of us. Our relationship with God does not start with do's and don'ts. Doesn't start with what we should do or shouldn't do, but rather who we are. God's goal is ultimately not to do this or not do that, but to be with us. God's goal is to dwell with his people. And so our mission, what we do, grows out of our identity, who we are as God's beloved children, not the other way around. It is not that we are God's people because we have checked off A, B, and C and done X, Y, and Z, but rather we do what we do because we are God's children, because we are God's people. So Gabriel reminds Mary who she is and whose she is. And then he shares the mission, which we read in verses 31 through 33. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, I want to point out two things about these verses. First, what Gabriel says, and then also how Gabriel says it what Gabriel says and how he says it. First, what he says is overwhelming, right? Remember what I said right at the beginning, that God has made promises to his people. And over the centuries, prophets proclaimed them, and since then, God's people have been waiting for God to fulfill these promises. 
Well, these words of Gabriel right here speak to the fulfillment of all of God's promises, all of his promises, right? There's the promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Right? Gabriel speaks of these things, but even bigger than Israel and their king, Gabriel also mentions the much bigger promise to Jacob and his descendants in Genesis 28. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. You see, this goes back to the origins of Israel, and it stretches out to all people on earth. So what Gabriel says is completely overwhelming. It's, it's incredible. It's amazing, right? He's not just sending Mary on some kind of errand. He's saying, hey, you know all of the promises that you and your ancestors have been waiting for for thousands and thousands of years. It's time. It's time, and it's happening through you. That's amazing. That's incredible. But what's amazing is not only what he says, right? Alluding to all of these promises from generations before, but how he says it, right? Verses 31 to 33 are not only an invitation, but also a proclamation, over and over again, Gabriel proclaims what will happen. You will conceive and give birth. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Just like all of God's promises before, Gabriel is not just suggesting this, hey, this might happen. He is promising it. Hey, this is going to happen. This is amazing. This overwhelming culmination and fulfillment of all that God has done among his people is to happen right here through Mary. And then comes Mary's response. How will this be? How will this be? And I love the honesty and the humility in this, right? She is not too afraid to ask a question. She's also not so proud as to presume, well, of course, <laughs> it's about time I get my big break, right? I've been waiting around for this. Rather, she honestly and humbly asks a question. How will this be? How 
Will this be? It's like she's saying, hey, surely you've dialed the wrong number, right? You've reached the wrong address. Return to sender, right? How, how could this possibly be? What I love about this is, is that this is the same pattern that we see in other prophetic calling texts throughout Scripture, right? Whenever God meets Moses in the burning bush, Moses says, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Or whenever God calls Isaiah in the heavenly vision, Isaiah responds, Woe to me! I am a man of unclean lips. Whenever God calls Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, I don't know how to speak, and, and I'm too young. Right? It is a rite of passage for a prophet to first object and question this calling, right? If, if someone got God's call and their first response was, hey, you got the right guy, it's me, let's go, that's probably not the right guy. All the prophets, when they are called by God, first go, oh, I'm not sure about this. And that's what Mary does here as she is being called by God. And, and here's something that I have been realizing more and more as I've been reading and reflecting on this series is that Mary truly is a prophet in the true sense, in the highest sense. The scene between her and Gabriel is just as much of a prophetic calling story as any other in Scripture. And I mean, what is a prophet but someone who is called to bring the Word of God into the world? I mean, throughout the Old Testament, uh, the prophets proclaim the word of God in sermons and songs and oracles and proclamations. This is what they do. They proclaim the word of God. But other times throughout the Old Testament, we also see prophets embody and enact the word of God, right? Like whenever Isaiah has lived completely naked for three years as a sign of judgment against oppressive nations, right? You can check it out. I think it's Isaiah chapter 20 or somewhere there, thereabouts. Or whenever Jeremiah goes and buys a field as a sign of hope that God is going to bring his people back to their home, back to this land. Or you probably know when Isaiah is told to marry a prostitute, as a sign of God's ongoing forgiveness and faithfulness, despite the fact that his people betray him. Right? Prophets are not only called to proclaim the word of God out loud, but also at times to embody and enact the word of God. And see, Mary truly is a prophet in all of these senses. She is called to bring the word of God into the world, not only through her speech, which we'll read a little bit later in this chapter, a great song of prophetic proclamation. Well, we'll see this in a couple of weeks together. But even more so, she brings the word of God into the world through her body as Gabriel says, she will conceive and give birth to a son. And not just any son, the son of the Most High. And unlike other prophets, her embodied action is not only a metaphor, 
of bringing God's Word into the world. She is called to literally bring the capital W Word of God into the world. Through Mary, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. She truly is a prophet in the highest sense. She is called like the other prophets in Scripture, and she responds like other prophets do, with that humble objection. How can this be? You know, I thought about this a few weeks ago, whenever we affirmed our elders, and both Chris, Cole, and Mary Sankrin shared about their process of discerning. And both of them shared that their first response was, no, surely not me. And then both of them paused and continued to consider what it was that God might be calling them to, right? And that, that moment of pause is a sign that maybe they were the, the right folks to call into eldership here, right? This is how we see God calling people time and again throughout Scripture, and this is what we see here with Mary. How will this be? How will this be? Now, notice that Mary asks her question in the same way that Gabriel spoke. She says, how will this be? How will this be, right? Just like he said, will happen over and over again. She asks, how will this be? She is not objecting or questioning that this will happen. She is just honestly and humbly wrestling with this good news. See, her question emerges from the deep places, the, the deep places of, of an honest and a humble heart. And I think it's, it's helpful to consider her question here in the context of, of Luke's larger story, because this is not the first time in Luke's story that we encounter a question that's directed at Gabriel. You see, uh, earlier in chapter 1, Gabriel appears to Zechariah. We talked about this a little bit last week. Appears to Zechariah and announces uh, some very similar news. There's going to be an incredible birth. And Zechariah and his wife are both well along in years, is what the text says, how it describes it. That's a very kind way of putting it. And Gabriel comes to say, hey, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah also responds by asking a question. But it is a very different question. Zechariah asks, how can I be sure of this? How can I be sure of this, right? How will I know? In other words, how can I trust you? Whereas Mary's response is, all right, so how are we going to do this, right? How will this be? Do you hear the difference between these two questions? And of course, Zechariah is immediately scolded and sentenced to nine months of silence to think things over. So what is the difference 
between their questions. What is the difference between the question that Zechariah asks and the question that Mary asks? Well, one writer, Kathleen Norris, describes it this way. She says, I interpret this to mean that while Zechariah is seeking knowledge and information, Mary contents herself with wisdom, with pondering a state of being. Mary's is a simpler response than Zechariah's, and also more profound. There is no arrogance, only holy fear and wonder. You see, her response is honest, and it's humble. She's not looking for information. She's really not looking for answers. She trusts what Gabriel has said, and now she's asking, so how are we going to do this? How will this be? As I think about the difference between Zechariah's question and Mary's question, I'm reminded of something that I've heard before, that one of the longest distances and hardest journeys to travel is the 18 inches from the head to the heart. And I wonder if this is the difference between their two questions. Perhaps Zechariah's response sprang from the head as a desire to, to stay in control. How can I be sure? While Mary's response comes from the heart and a desire to serve, how will this be? See, God invites us to ask questions. But as we can see with Zechariah and Mary, there are some questions that really are only dead ends, while other questions open up pathways that we would have never imagined. So, I want to ask us to consider, in this Advent season, as we come to this season of waiting, what questions do you have? What questions arise in your hearts and your mind? Uh, are there questions that we are too afraid to ask? Are there answers that we're too afraid to let go of? You see, in Christ, we do not need to be afraid. We can bring our whole selves, questions and all, and perhaps these questions are not signs of troublemaking or undermining, but rather signs of humility and honesty. I was recently listening to a podcast where a group of people were discussing faith and, and doubt, and one of them shared something incredibly profound. He said, if we Christians we're more honest about our doubt, then the world around us might be more honest about its faith. 
If we were more honest about our doubts, the world around us might just be more honest about its faith. And they cited a number of studies in which people who claim to be atheists or agnostics or nothing at all still pray from time to time. Which means that oh, there is some measure of faith there. Despite doubt or uncertainty, there is still some faith there. If we were more honest about our doubt, then perhaps the world around us would be more honest about its faith. You see, sometimes I think the church having all the answers has actually turned quite a few people away because we end up coming across as pretty arrogant and smug. I wonder if being honest about our questions might actually become doorways for others to enter in who otherwise wouldn't be interested in this thing called faith at all. You see, the, the church ought to be a place where all are welcome to bring their whole selves, doubt and faith. It should be the safest place to ask questions. Because in Christ, we do not need to be afraid. Now, some of you are not afraid of asking questions, right? You have all kinds of questions. And as I just said, questions are welcome. But in our questions, I want you to consider where it is that these questions come from. Where do your questions come from? Are they surface-level questions that are just looking for information? Maybe just looking to become, you know, kind of a smart person, kind of a know-it-all, right? I can wrestle with that sometimes. Are there questions or, or, or perhaps answers that you're holding on to or looking for so that you can feel more in control, right? Where do these questions come from, right? And, and, and if, if so, I, I want to invite you to dig deeper. Dig a little bit deeper. Make that difficult journey from the head down to the heart. Whatever questions may surface, look a few layers beneath and ask, why is this question important to me? What am I hoping to gain from this question? Dig just a little bit deeper beneath the surface to go beyond that initial question into the depths of the heart. And ultimately, as we journey deeper into the heart and the soul, we will at times come to questions that may not have nice, neat, tidy answers. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask them, but it may mean that there are questions which we will never quite find answers to, but as we ask them, we are actually called to live in the mystery of God. I mean, but, but what an amazing thing 
you know, instead of finding answers, to find God himself. And this is ultimately the definition of faith. This is what faith is. It's not certainty. It's not having all the answers. Faith is trusting God and living faithfully in the mystery. So when Gabriel announced this good news to Mary, she responded honestly and humbly with a question. As we continue in this season of waiting, may we bring our questions to God. May we find him and may we be found by him. Amen.